0: Okay, good. So, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're coming to the end, all right? We're almost done. We just have next week. I'll be the last one. Um, But I thought that I would go over uh, Ephesians this week and effectively also go over Colossians. Okay, because Ephesians and Colossians, they're just so similar that this is kind of like both, but the emphasis is really on Ephesians. And then just to tell you for no particular reason. Um, I put these classes together based on my own reading. Uh, I just kind of buried myself in a library one summer and just read everything I could find on every letter of Paul Uh, because my own seminary education in this area was kind of spotty. So this isn't old seminary notes. Uh, This is is my own little effort here to, to, to to put all this together. Of reading many, many different commentaries and just everything I get my hands on and try to synthesize all of it. Because, uh, you know, like I said, as as beautiful as St. Paul is in any single phrase, in any single passage you could put together, it really does help when you can see his overarching plan. Okay, it really does help you to see what he's doing and his beautiful overarching plan for these letters. Okay, so today, let's take a look at Ephesians, all right? Um, now, Ephesians is a hard nut to crack. Okay, You could almost say that it's Paul's hardest letter. It's one of hardest, Paul's hardest letters to understand. And the only way to understand Ephesians, so to speak, is to kind of sneak in through the back door. And that's what we're going to do. Because the objective evidence for Ephesians is so spotty and so... Uh, limited, we almost have to reconstruct based on some other evidence that we have what Paul was doing when he wrote Ephesians. But I think when you put the pieces together, I think you'll discover that that it makes a lot of sense. Okay? Here's how it all begins. It all begins with Paul's journey to Rome, which I drew on my little map for you. Alright? Um, so Paul's finished all of his missionary journeys, alright? And as, as I said he, he, last week, or the week before, Paul ends in Corinth, right? And uh, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. Paul goes back to Jerusalem with that collection of his he's been taken up in those diocesan double-sealed bags, with with two witnesses. Okay, so Paul goes back to uh, Paul goes back to to, to to Jerusalem, and when Paul gets back to Jerusalem, he finds a most hostile reception. Okay. Christians are happy to see him because he's got that collection for him, right? But nobody else is happy to see him. All the Jewish people, they're all incensed at Paul, okay? And remember how famous Paul was. Remember how famous Paul was. Remember Apollos, who crossed over to Corinth from North Africa? He had to hear the teaching of Paul, okay? Remember how word had spread all around the Mediterranean, about Paul, just from people traveling, and just actually as an, as an aside, complete, complete aside here, you might think of tourism as being sort of a modern phenomenon, but it's an ancient phenomenon. The ancient Romans were the first culture of, well, that we know of that had a tourist industry. And they got around. And, you know, they had this great system of roads, and they, they had a little grand tour that they took. You, you know, you've heard about the seven wonders of the ancient world. Tourist highlights, basically. So, you know, word was spreading, word was spreading about Paul, and Paul finds out, but he finds out the hard way. Right? Paul gets back uh, to Jerusalem, he shows up in Jerusalem, and what's the first place Paul goes? The first place Paul goes, to the temple. Right? What's the first thing Paul does when he goes into a city? Goes to the synagogue. When he gets back to Jerusalem, the synagogue par excellence is not a synagogue, it's the temple. Paul goes to the temple. Paul stands up in the temple, he says, Jews of Jerusalem, listen to what I have to say. And everyone in the temple all all gathered around, they say, that's the one! That's him! That's Paul! He's the one who's been telling us to abandon our ancestral traditions. He's the one who's been telling us to abandon the law of Moses. Come on everybody, let's get him! And that's what they did. And Paul... Paul got dragged out of the temple and dragged through the streets of Jerusalem. And then people started beating him with clubs and throwing stones at him. Which I like to remember when I'm having a bad day. Okay? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't, at least I haven't had that, haven't had that much. But Paul gets, a, Paul gets a, oh, there's a riot in Jerusalem for all these people that are incensed and furious about him. And if it hadn't been for the Roman centurions, they probably would have beaten Paul to death. Right there in the streets of Jerusalem okay? but the Roman centurions they, they come in, they break up the crowd, they bring order, they bring peace and they take this troublemaker Paul and they throw him in prison. Okay? They throw him in prison. and you can actually look here on your little map on your little map, uh, fortress of Antonia. that was the seat of Roman government in Jerusalem. Where was the seat of Roman government in Jerusalem located right next to the temple. Because they were on the watch for any kind of religiously motivated rebellion against Rome. Okay, so they throw they throw Paul into the Antonia Fortress. They throw him into prison. Okay, and they figure they're going to loosen Paul up a little bit. They'll give him a nice beating. They'll give him a nice scourging. Okay, get him to talk. Get him to find out uh, what really happened. Okay, which is what which is what they did back in those days. Of course, that's what they did to Christ, right? I'm going to. Give him a good flogging, give him a good scourging. Well, they thought they'd loosen up Paul a little bit by by doing that. And what does Paul say as soon as they break out their whips and 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 uh, and chains? What does Paul say? You who I'm a Roman citizen. You can't give me any kind of physical punishment without due process. And they go, Oh, you're a Roman citizen. You're a Roman citizen. Oh, Paul, so sorry, so sorry. And and so all they do is they just detain him. Okay, they just leave Paul. They just leave Paul in jail. All right. So the next day. The next day, they're going to have a trial. They're going to have a trial the next day. And that night, someone comes to warn Paul. See, Paul had relatives in Jerusalem. Paul had a sister, believe it or not. You know, hear about Paul's family. Okay? Paul had a sister. She lived in Jerusalem. Paul had a nephew. He lived in Jerusalem. And he comes to the Antonian Fortress at night. And he says, Paul, there's 40 men out there who are sworn never to eat or drink until you're dead. And they're planning to kill you tomorrow as they take you over for trial. So Paul learns about this uh, this plot to kill him. And what does Paul do? Tells his captors. Paul tells his captors that there's this plot to kill him. And so they have to take Paul out of town. To save his own life, they're going to give him a trial, but they can't do it there. So they take off to this little town called Caesarea Maritima. Anybody been to Israel before? Okay, been to Caesarea? Caesarea, beautiful city, right on the right on the Mediterranean. You know, and and that was the seat of the Roman province of Judea. Right. To get Paul out of town took 500 armed guards to get Paul safely out of town. Two hundred soldiers, two hundred auxiliary soldiers, and seventy plus soldiers on horseback to get Paul out of town. And what did he do? All he did was preach the gospel. Right? Did I tell you about that that proper British bishop who who said when Paul preached they had riots, when I preached they served me tea. Okay? So here's Paul telling it like it is and he needs a lot of he needs a lot of a lot of help. So he goes up to Caesarea and he's on trial there before Felix. Felix the the the, the governor. And what do you think Felix says about Paul? He says, I got no gripe with Paul. I got, I got no gripe with Paul. Send him back to Jerusalem. And and Paul says, You can't send me back to Jerusalem. I'm afraid for my life. So what does Paul do? Requests once again one of his privileges as a Roman citizen okay? Paul can get a trial before the emperor as long as he waits long enough Okay, so this is how Paul gets to Rome all expenses paid okay? Paul gets a free trip to Rome because he's, he's a Roman citizen now it takes Paul almost a year to get there and he stops here and stops there and he shipwrecks here and he, and he shipwrecks there and when he gets up to Rome he's got pretty sweet digs Paul does uh, they give him his own place They they basically put him under house arrest. Paul can't go anywhere. Well, he waits in Rome for his trial with the emperor. But people can come and see him. And people do come and see him. And he's in prison for two years waiting for his trial. And people come and see him. And people come and talk to him and tell him about problems. And Paul writes letters from prison. Four letters Paul writes from prison. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. They're called the Captivity Epistles, right? And there's absolutely no doubt that Paul writes Ephesians from prison in Rome because right there in the letter it says, I'm a prisoner for Christ, I'm an ambassador in chains. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is all the background I have for Ephesians. Okay? But that doesn't mean that's all I have to say, right? A little bit more. I want to throw you one last curveball, one last Pauline curveball. Remember when we talked about uh, Corinthians? And I said, uh, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. Okay, here's my last curveball. Last curveball is, Ephesians was not actually written to the Ephesians. And I think I can make a pretty good argument for that. Let's talk about this. There's three basic reasons why the audience in Ephesians is a mystery... And here's how I'm also going to explain a little bit about Colossians in the process. First of all, nature of ancient letters. All right. An ancient letter was a scroll. A scroll tied up with a string. Very important letter. They'd also put a wax seal on the string. And uh, Rome, the Roman government, they had a, a magnificent postal system, a, a really magnificent, very efficient postal system, and because of their great roads, a postal courier could go 50 miles in a day with a letter, which is what he was assigned to do, unless it was an urgent letter, in which case he could cover 170 miles in a day with a letter, except that letters were only officially sent by the government for government correspondence. There was no postal system for ordinary folk writing to ordinary folk. Remember uh, Paul's letter to the uh, Thessalonians? Remember how, remember how Paul got the letter up to Thessalonica? Remember how he got it up there? He handed it to Timothy. Carry this up to Thessalonica for me. That's how letters got sent in the ancient world. Uh, you're on your way to Ephesus. You might gather up some mail from people who want to write to others in Ephesus, and you carry them over for a fee. Okay. So it wasn't like there was, uh, you know, some sort of address written on this letter to the Ephesians. Um, there was, you know, there was no address written to any of these things. The letter to the Ephesians simply says, "To the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus." Okay? It doesn't act. Unlike other letters, it doesn't say, "To the Ephesians." Now let me just circumvent one potential conflict there. You can read some Bibles in which it does say to the Ephesians. But those were added later. The most ancient manuscripts, the most reliable Bibles, the best scholarship we have, without a doubt, says that it has no one addressed to it. It just says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, so far so good. Here's a second reason why we say it wasn't written to the Ephesians. It's completely impersonal, and that makes no sense at all. For somebody who lived three years in this place. He lived three years in Ephesus. And that's longer than he lived any other place. And you remember how Paul left Ephesus? You might not recall. When Paul left Ephesus, remember the riot of the silversmiths? They were making the little silver Artemis goddesses. And they were running Paul's business. Paul was running down their business. They drove Paul out of town. And Paul had to flee for his life. Well... When Paul left Ephesus, all the people of Ephesus followed Paul to the ship and with tears in their eyes, saying, Oh, Paul, we'll never see you again. When will we ever see you again? Paul, Paul. But does it make any sense that after all that, he wouldn't say even hello to somebody in this letter? Every other time he writes a letter, say hello to Phoebe for me. Say hello to a Priscilla and Aquila for me. Oh, and don't forget to say hello to you know, whoever it is. And this is this letter, we're a place where he lived for three years, and he, he has no personal mention to say to anybody at all. It's very hard to believe that he actually sent it to the Ephesians with all that background. But this is what I consider to be the smoking gun. All right, The smoking gun as to why I say it wasn't written to the Ephesians. The most, ancient, the most ancient copy of Ephesians we have from the 2nd century A.D., from the writings of Marcion, it's actually called the letter to the Laodiceans. Right? The letter to, And here's Laodicea, right now, you, just so you can see where it was. Okay, so, smarty pants, um, if it wasn't written to the Ephesians, how did it end up being called Ephesians? Okay? How did it end up being called Ephesians? And here's where I have to kind of chime in a little bit about Colossians to answer it. Y'all with me so far? So far so good? Okay. I told you this one was a little bit hard to crack. We have to get in through the back door, but I think we're getting in. Okay. So, why was it called Letter of the Ephesians? Well, let's take a look at Colossians first. Okay? Here's the thing about uh, Ephesians and Colossians. They're practically the same letter. Two-thirds... Of, of, of uh, Ephesians and, ver- and, and Colossians is practically verbatim. It's practically the exact same letter. So let's take a look at Colossians here for a second. All right, Paul's in Rome. Paul's in prison. He writes. Uh, he writes this letter to the Colossians. He gives it to a friend named Epaphus, right, who lived in Colossae, who came to visit him in Rome, and Epaphus told him of a problem they were having out here in Colossae insignificant little wool-spinning, sheep-herding village that Paul himself actually never visited. They had a problem in, in Colossae with uh, with Gnosticism. Okay? And and, um, and so uh, this letter that Paul writes, uh, it, it ends up uh, being a great big success. Paul finds out, and it might be, this is kind of our best educated guess, that the source of Ephesians was that Paul wanted to see the same problem in all the churches in the, the region, Colossae, Laodicea, Ephesus, all the people who had a problem with Gnosticism, which we'll talk about in just a second. And the letter stopped circulating in Ephesus. That's where it ended. Because Ephesus was the capital. Ephesus is where the library was. Okay? So it might be that it's called Ephesians, not because that's where it began, but because that's where it ended. Okay? So. Let's talk about the purpose to the Ephesians. Let's talk about Paul's message to the Ephesians. And once again, I have to confess, we don't really know except through Colossians. Right? If you understand Colossians, which you have a better understanding of, you can kind of get into the back door to understand Ephesians. Okay? So here's the problem in Colossae. And I think this will make sense. The problem in Colossae is Gnosticism. All right? We talked about Gnosticism... Uh, we talked about Gnosticism before, okay, which is very briefly, but uh, uh, just kind of brief review. Gnosticism is this, it's a different religion, first of all. It passes itself off as Christianity. It wasn't Christianity, right? But it passes itself off very effectively as Christianity. And just as a side note, we often underestimate how much we're affected by our own culture how much the beliefs of people kind of as a generality influence us in our Christian thinking. And every culture, we're all children of our culture, we're all children of our society, children of our age. And it's, it's a great struggle sometimes to try to maintain the pure faith that Christ handed down, Christ handed on because we don't even recognize we're, we're kind of inundated by, by the culture. So here's Gnosticism. It, it, it inundates the culture. It confuses people. And the basic message here of Gnosticism was Christ is one power among many. Right? That was the basic message. He's not God. He has one power among many. And here's Gnosticism. Okay? There are three kinds of people. Isn't it nice when a, a, a religion just reduces all of humanity to just three kinds of people? Nice and simple. There's three kinds of people, okay? There's uh, people called pneumatics, people called co and people called psychics, all right? Now, pneumatics were in great shape. They were the good people. They were the ones that were going to pass on to the next stage of existence. Uh, co those people uh, didn't have a prayer, they didn't have a hope those were the bad people, no matter what they did they'd never figure out the saving gnosis, gnosis means knowledge, the saving gnosis that sets you free and sends you off to the next level of existence, most of us are psychics, most of us were people who, well we had a choice to make, okay, and we could go one way or we could go the other okay operating all, and here's where it really begins to be confusing for people there were these higher powers in Gnosticism called demi Spiritual powers. And they kind of played on your soul. Okay? Uh, they, they were these higher spiritual powers, and they kind of influenced us. In, right here in, in our own life, they played us like a harp, and we had to break free from the power of these demi until we could go on to a higher plane of existence. That's Gnosticism. Okay? And here's where it ended up being very confusing to people. They started to think of demi-urges as angels. Can you kind of see how they would make that confusion? These higher angels, and they're kind of playing on us right down here uh, on earth. Many Jewish Christians in Colossae confused Gnosticism and Christianity uh, because uh, they had such a, a, a dedication to, uh, to the angels. The angels who controlled the destinies of men, uh, who controlled uh, nations here on earth. Forces like that presided over us, almost like uh, almost like gods. Acting as intermediaries between God and man, and they do okay? and they do um, and by the way, this ephesians and, and, and Colossians this is where our understanding of the choirs of angels come from. You might have heard of you know the nine choirs of angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, the principalities and the powers all those terms come to us through Colossians okay um, so anyway. The purpose of Colossians, Paul writes Colossians to say Christ is the head of everything. Okay? Christ is over all. He's not just the head of the church. He's over angels. He's over principalities. He's over powers. He is over all things. And the Colossians receive it well. Okay? It's a success. Well, then, when he finds out the Colossians is a success, it stands to reason, then, that he writes Ephesians. Remember how he wrote uh, Galatians and then he wrote Romans. And Galatians and Romans said a lot of the same thing. Okay, trying to... Kind of like a, a, a rough draft and a final copy. So too with Colossians and Ephesians. Okay? Not known for sure, just a reasonable guess. It might have been that this was then a circular letter trying to stave off the same problems that he found in Colossians. That he found in his... In his, uh, um, in his interaction with letter to wrote Colossians. Okay, so now... Here's the central thought of Ephesians. The central thought of Ephesians is that in Christ and in Christ alone are all things united. And this, I think, is a very, very important point. Stop and think about this. Apart from Christ, this is Paul's main message, apart from Christ, there's nothing on this earth except division and disharmony. Without Christ... There's nothing here on this earth except man divided from man, man divided from woman, class divided from class, race divided from race, nation divided from nation, Gentile divided from Jew. Everybody's divided. There's only one way that everybody's going to come together, and that's in Christ. That's the message of Ephesians. That's what it's really all about. Okay? It's the only way that it can ever be made possible. And it's a letter in, in two main parts, okay? Dogmatic section, the first three chapters. Moral section, the last three chapters. Basic message of the dogmatic section, okay? When Christ is first, peace reigns, right? Basic, pa- basic message of the moral section, you have to respond to that. And let me tell you how to do it, people. Let me tell you how to do it, okay? Um, and that makes kind of a nice little dividing point. Um 5 minute break do your thing and uh, and then we'll pick up with the, the, the selected passages in in just a moment